You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How you doing tonight, Allison? I'm a little cold. Cold? Yeah. It's warm in here. So on tonight's show, a little bit later, the Riverbenders will be taking over the mics again. They will be talking about some paranormal comics. Stay tuned after them, because I will be making a special announcement that is actually related to what they're talking about. Before we get to the Riverbenders, tonight we're going to be talking about something that weaves together a ballad. I've been doing ballad shows for the patrons. This isn't necessarily a paranormal ballad, but there is a ballad involved. It involves dolls. The royal family. Dead girls. And the cure. And the cure. (laughs) I think this is what we call a uh, smorgasbord. And before we get into that story, I just want to remind everybody that if you like what we do and you want to help support Strange Familiars, the best way to do so is by becoming a patron at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's all different tiers of support there. 
whatever tier of support you join up at, you get exclusive shows every month. We've been doing two every month. How many patron shows do you think there are now, Allison? This is a trick question. It's not a trick question. 80? There are over 80 shows now. When you become a patron, you get those 80 shows, and then we're adding two exclusive full episodes of Strange Familiars every month for our patrons. Again, it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And I want to thank all of our patrons who make Strange Familiars possible. And you know what? I want to thank all of our listeners. Thank you all for listening. If you feel so inclined to leave a nice five-star review wherever you're listening, that'd be great. If you just want to listen and enjoy, that's great as well. Let's go ahead and get to Frozen Charlotte. So really, this is a tale of several Charlottes over the course of several hundred years. Did any of them make webs? Oh, I didn't even get to that, Charlotte. (laughs) (laughs) That's certainly a... uh, almost strange familiars like quality to be able to make webs that spell out messages. Yeah, yeah. But no, there No, not nothing to do with this. There are no pigs, no spiders. No spiders. So we're going to start with a Charlotte of the royal family, correct? Yes, this is Princess Charlotte, not the one who is currently a child right now, but the one that was born in 1793. Would this have been King George's daughter? Yes. I mean, everyone's George, but yes. <laughs> Not the mad King George. This is, this is the mad King George's granddaughter. Okay. So she is um, part of the line of succession. Meaning she would be queen. Yes. If she outlives her grandfather and father. Okay. I think you know where this is going. She does not. She only lives to be 21. She dies in what they call a, uh, it was quite tragic, what they called a triple tragedy, because not only did she die as a result of childbirth and the child died, but her obstetrician was so overcome by the blame that was put upon him that a few months later, he took his own life. Wow. It actually ushered in a new way of thinking about intervening in extended labors and the use of forceps. She just went too long. And by the time she delivered the baby, it was too late. And neither mother nor child survived, no. Which caused sort of a scramble in the royal family, because now they have no apparent heir. So then newspapers start urging the king to have all of his unmarried sons get married really quickly and try to have an heir. (laughs) And his youngest child is already over 40. So this is, I mean, not that that's a problem for male, male heirs, but it doesn't make things easy. So his fourth son, Prince Edward, dismisses his mistress and proposes to Victoria, Dowager Princess, and they have a daughter named Victoria who becomes Queen Victoria, one of the longest running monarchs in the royal family history. She of the Victorian age. Yes, exactly. And so, as a sort of preface to stories about Charlotte's, the death of this Charlotte ushers in the Victorian age, which is probably one of the most morbid, <laughs> darkest. Yes, um, it's, it's a bit of a dark time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it has very gothic tendencies, which I think are probably apt for the whole spirit of the show. So sort of the death of Princess Charlotte, mm-hmm. in a way, kind of sets the tone for the Charlottes thereafter. Exactly, yeah. 
That was my thought. I guess you could say it's kind of a, a pattern of tragedy, in a sense. Mm-hmm. She paves the way. And it does al- totally alter the intended line of succession. And obviously, none of the people that we know today as the royal family would be where they are had it not been for this premature death of a 21-year-old back in the early 1800s. So her death takes place in 1817, and then we jet all the way to a decade later, to 1830, where their story picks up again with what will be a story about Frozen Charlotte and how Frozen Charlotte came to be. I've been hanging out in the 1830s on newspapers.com for a totally different reason. It's a fun place to be. You know, it was made in the 1830s. I don't, I, it's just completely unrelated, but it's new knowledge I have, and I, I'm, I'm compelled to share. Toad Road was made in the 1830s. It was the actual towpath along the Cadoris that became Toad Road was actually... Made in 1830. Made in the 1830s by Cadoris Navigation Company. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That would have been a very uh, rural area in 1830. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Bring it back to episode one, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> or episode three, or however you want to count it. The first run of episodes. Back to Charlotte. Sorry, I, I derailed the Charlotte train. So in 1830, a story debuts, which is called Death at the Toilette. And so you know it's not Death at the Toilet. This isn't an Elvis thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, 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 the concept of arranging yourself at your toilet. Right. Getting yourself ready. Yes. Yes. Hair and makeup yep. or whatever passed for it at the time. <laughs> Some lead-based. <laughs> <laughs> so this story is written by Samuel Warren from Passages from the Diary of a Late Physician. And it details the story of a young woman who does not heed her mother's protests. So this is from a book he wrote? Yes. Okay. Do we have this story? Of course we do. So for some reason, the story does not include the full names of the people in the story. Okay. So it'll say like Mrs. P, Lieutenant N. That was common back in the time. I guess it's supposed to give an air of anonymity yes. to the players involved or suggest that there's maybe someone famous or... Or someone someone real. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you hear me talk about Mrs. P, I was going to fill it in with funny names, but I decided to just go. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Death of the Toilette. Tis no use talking to me, mother. I will go to Mrs. P's party tonight. If I die for it, that's flat. You know, Lieutenant N is to be there, and he's going to leave town tomorrow, so up I go to dress. Charlotte, why will you be so obstinate? You know how poorly you've been all week. And the doctor says, late hours are the worst things in the world for you. Pshaw, mother. Nonsense, nonsense. Be persuaded for once now, I beg. Oh, dear, dear, what a night, too. It pours with rain and blows a perfect hurricane. You'll be wet and catch cold. Rely on it. Come now, won't you stop and keep me company tonight? That's a good girl. Some other night will do as well for that, you know. For now I'll go to Mrs. P's party. If it rains, cats and dogs, so up, up I go, singing jauntily. Such were very nearly the words, and such was the manner in which Miss J expressed her determination to act in defiance of her mother's wishes and entreaties. She was the only child of her widowed mother, and had but a few weeks before completed her 26th year with no other prospect before her than bleak single blessedness. A weaker, more frivolous, and conceited creature never breathed the torment of her amiable parent, the nuisance of her acquaintance. Though her mother's circumstances were very straitened, 
sufficing barely to enable them to maintain a footing in what is called the middling genteel class of society. This young woman contrived by some means or other to gratify her penchant for dress, and gadded about where here, there, and everywhere the most showily dressed person in the neighborhood. Though far from being even pretty-faced, or having any pretensions to a good figure, for she both stooped and was skinny, yet believed herself handsome, and by a vulgar, flippant forwardness of demeanor, especially when in mixed company, extorted such attentions as persuaded her that others thought so as well. For one or two years she had been an occasional patient of mine. The settled pallor, the sallowness of her complexion, conjointly with other symptoms, evinced the existence of a liver complaint, and the last visits I had paid her were in consequence of frequent sensations of oppression and pain in the chest, which too clearly indicated some organic disease of the heart. I saw enough to warrant me in warning her mother of the possibility of her daughter's sudden death from the cause and the imminent peril to which she exposed herself by dancing late hours. But her mother's remonstrances, gentle and affectionate as they were, were thrown away upon her headstrong daughter. It was striking eight by the old church clock when Miss J, humming the words of the song above mentioned, lit her chamber candle by her mother's and withdrew to her room to dress soundly rating the servant girl, by the way, for not having starched some article or other which she intended to have worn that evening. As her toilette was usually a long and laborious business, it did not occasion much surprise to her mother, who was sitting by the fire in their little parlor, reading some book of devotion that the church chimes announced the first quarter past nine o'clock, without her daughter's making her appearance. The noise she had made overhead, in walking to and fro to her drawers and dressing table, had ceased about half an hour ago, and her mother supposed she was then engaged at her glass in adjusting her hair and preparing her complexion. "'Well, I wonder what can make Charlotte so very careful about her dress tonight,' exclaimed Mrs. J., removing her eyes from the book and gazing thoughtfully at the fire. "'Oh, it's because the young lieutenant is to be there. Well, I was young myself once, and it's very excusable in Charlotte.' She heard the wind howling so dismally without that she drew together with the coals of her brisk fire, and was laying down the poker when the clock of the church struck the second quarter after nine. Why, what in the world can Charlotte be doing all the while? she again inquired. She listened. I have not heard her move for the last three quarters of an hour. I'll call the maid and ask. She rung the bell, and the servant appeared. Betty, Miss J is not gone yet, is she? No, ma'am, replied the girl. I took up the curling irons only about a quarter of an hour ago as she had put one of her curlers out and she said that she should be soon to be ready. She's burst her new muslin dress behind, and that's put her in a way, ma'am. Go up to her room then, Betty, and tell her it's half-past nine o'clock. The servant accordingly went upstairs and knocked at the bedroom door once, twice, thrice, but received no answer. There was a dead silence, except when the wind shook the window. Could Miss J have fallen asleep? Impossible. The servant knocked again, but unsuccessfully as before, she became a little flustered, and after a moment's pause, opened the door and entered. There was Miss J sitting at the glass. Why, ma'am, commenced Betty, in a petulant tone, walking up to her. Here, have I been knocking for these five minutes? Betty staggered, horror-struck to the bed, and uttered a loud shriek, alarming Mrs. J, who instantly tottered upstairs, almost palsied with fright. Miss J was dead. I was there within a few minutes, for my house was not more than two streets distant. It was a stormy night in the month of March, and the desolate aspect of things without, deserted streets, the dreary howling of the wind, 
and the incessant pattering of the rain contributed to cast a gloom over my mind when connected with the intelligence of the awful event that had summoned me out, which was deepened into horror by the spectacle I was doomed to witness. Upon reaching the house, I found Mrs. J. in violent hysterics, surrounded by several of her neighbors who had been called to her assistance. I repaired instantly to the scene of death and beheld what I shall never forget. The room was occupied by a white curtained bed. There was but one window, and before it was a table on which stood a looking-glass, hung with a little white drapery, and various paraphernalia of the toilette lay scattered about. Brooches, pins, curling irons, curling papers, ribbons, gloves, and an armchair was drawn to the table, and in it Miss J. stone dead, her head resting upon her right hand, her elbow supported by the table, while her left hung down by her side, grasping a pair of curling irons. Each of her wrists was encircled by a very showy gilt bracelet. She was dressed in a white muslin frock with a little bordering of blonde. Her face was turned toward the glass, which by the light of the expiring candle reflected with frightful fidelity the clammy fixed features daubed over with rouge and carmine, the fallen lower jaw, and the eye directed full onto the glass with a cold stare that was appalling. On examining the countenance more narrowly, I thought I detected the traces of a smirk of conceit and self-complacency, which not even the palsying touch of death could wholly obliterate. <laughs> wow. That's judgment on the dead, Mike. <laughs> the hair of the corpse, all smooth and glossy, was curled with elaborate precision, and the skinny, sallow neck was encircled with a string of glistening pearls. The ghastly visage of death, thus leering through the tinselry of fashion, the vain show of artificial joy, was a horrible mockery, of the fooleries of life. Indeed, it was a most humiliating and shocking spectacle. Poor creature, struck dead in the very act of sacrificing at the shrine of female vanity. She must have been dead for some time, perhaps twenty minutes or half an hour when I arrived, and nearly all the animal beat had deserted the body, which was rapidly stiffening. I attempted, but in vain, to draw a little blood from the arm. Two or three women present proceeded to remove the corpse to the bed for the purpose of laying it out. What strange passiveness! No resistance offered to them while straightening the bent right arm and binding the jaw together with a faded white ribbon which Miss J. had destined for her waist that evening. On the examination of the body, we found that death had been occasioned by disease of the heart. Her life might have been protracted, possibly for years, had she but taken the advice and that of her mother. I have seen many hundreds of corpses as well in the calm composure of natural death as mangled and distorted by violence, but I never have seen so startling a satire upon human vanity, so repulsive, unsightly, and loathsome a spectacle as a corpse dressed for a ball. Ooh. <laughs> the thing is, she didn't go out, like, to all hours of the night dancing. She never made it there. Like, that's the thing. I'm like, you're blaming her for putting on some blush. So this is ostensibly from a diary of a physician? Yes. So uh, immediately... I'm struck with something that I find sometimes in, in other nonfiction works that always calls me to question them. Too many quotes from people, uh, conversation quotes, mm -hmm. you know, when the person writing the diary was not present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that in a lot of paranormal books and stuff, and I'm kind of like, well, how how did you know all this conversation if you weren't there? Yeah. Well, you'd be right. The guy was a total sham. So he wasn't actually a physician. He had started to study medicine at the University of Edinburgh, but um, quickly adopted another profession. Can you guess what it might be? Other than writing? 
Yes, and other than medicine. Preacher? Lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this was his, uh, writing was a bit of a side hustle, and he Mm -hmm. had these, uh, I think, sort of fanciful notions of what being a doctor might have been like. Right, right. Along with a, seems like a heavy moralizing chip on his shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she, you know, wow, he had a lot of opinions about this girl. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So this is, uh, our first Charlotte is, shall we say, frozen in death in her vanity. But it's a nice segue because she is a corpse dressed for a ball, which leads to the next story of how we get to frozen Charlotte. What was the the last line there? The last line is, uh, how loathsome a spectacle as a corpse dressed for a ball. Corpse dressed for a ball. It's a good line. It is a good line. In fact, so good someone else ends up stealing it, basically, a decade later. Moving us on to our next Charlotte. So now we're moving all the way up to 1840. We are just flying through the decades. Yeah. And an article appears in the New York Observer, of which I cannot find archives from because the person that most recently owned it, let's say, would be a lover of alternate facts of history. And not not maybe archives of uh, real historical thought. But this was republished in many newspapers all around the country. And that actually becomes key to the expansion of this uh, narrative. Okay. So this next story is? This next story is called A Corpse Going to a Ball. A Corpse Going to a Ball. Very similar. What did this poor woman do? Was her dress an inch above her ankle or something? Does she have to die for it? Well, again, not listening to her mother. Mm, that'll do it. <laughs> so I will read this article from wintertime, early January of 1840. Perhaps some who have seen the words at the head of this article may imagine that they are about to be treated to a passage from the dreams of fancy, but they are mistaken. I have a sad and solemn tale of truth to relate, and when it has been read, there will be no hesitations in believing that truth is stronger than fiction. No coloring shall be laid on the story, no art of embellishment shall heighten its interest. It shall be told to others as it was told to me, and you shall be convinced that there is nothing more than truth in the story of the corpse that went to a ball. You recollect that the first day of January, 1840, was a bitter cold day. It was cold as far south as the city of New York, And up here in the country where I'm riding, it was terribly severe. You could not ride far against the wind without being exposed to freezing. I've heard of two cases of death by cold on that day in this region, and of another case in which the sufferer was saved by great exertion when at the point of perishing. The night of that day was to be observed, as is usual here, by a New Year's Eve ball. Invitations had been extended for many miles around, and a great gathering of the young and gay and thoughtless was expected. Extensive preparations had been made for an evening of merriment and glee, and merry hearts beat quickly in anticipation of the pleasures of the scene. None was happier in the thought of the coming joy than Miss Blank, again, no name, Mm. who took her seat in the sleigh by the side of her partner for the evening and set out for a ride of some twenty miles to join the dance. She was young and gay, and her charms of youth and beauty never were lovelier than when dressed for that New Year's ball. Of course, too thinly clad for the season, and especially for that dreadful day, she had not gone far before she complained of being cold, very cold. But their anxiety to reach the end of their ride in time to be present at the opening of the ball induced them to hurry onwards without stopping by the way. Not long after this complaining, she said that she felt perfectly comfortable and now quite warm, and that there was no necessity of delay on her account. They reached at length the house where the company was gathered, 
The young man leaped from the sleigh and extended his hand to assist her out, and she did not offer hers. He spoke to her, but she answered not. She was dead, stone dead, frozen stiff, a corpse on the way to a ball. A corpse onto a ball. Reminds me of the corpse bride, but it's not. Yeah. (laughs) The corpse bride is a Russian tale. You looked that up earlier. I was asking about it. So she froze to death. Yes, this is supposed to have happened somewhere in upstate New York. So, again, when you talk about things that sort of tip you off to potential fiction within the realm of what's supposed to be nonfiction, Mm -hmm. whenever someone says, this is absolutely the truth, once you hear this, you'll know this to be the truth, I'm like, well, why why are you protesting so much ahead of the fact? Like, (laughs) it's fake. This was a fake story. Yeah, I looked and looked to see if there was, you know, mention of someone freezing to death in the Poughkeepsie area Mm -hmm. on New Year's Eve. What I did find was this interesting uh, tiny little article in the Rutland County Herald from Rutland, Vermont, in the 17th of March, 1840. An appalling story under this head has been going the rounds in most of the papers for some time, which we deferred publishing from the conviction that it was a fabrication. It is said that it originated in the New York Observer, the editor of which we have no doubt was imposed upon. The Poughkeepsie Telegraph, printed in the vicinity where the occurrence is said to have taken place, contradicts the story and pronounces it one of the humbugs of the day. So they're saying that this is another newspaper calling yeah, out. Calling it BS. <laughs> but excusing the editor. Oh, it's not the editor's fault. He was imposed upon. Yes, it's a poor editor. He would never print something he knew was false. But the story really takes off. And I know when we've covered other stories before, I'm fascinated by the way that news travels in such a slower way where stories get repeated for decades because yes. newspapers need just filler. Yeah, I find that, like, I mean, just with the wild man stories. Sometimes a wild man story will pop up, you know, in its place of origin. Say somebody saw a wild man in, in Ohio, and it'll pop up there. And sometimes it'll be years later, the same story will pop up in, you know, say California or, or Florida or something in another newspaper. And I'm like, well, that sounds familiar. And you go back and you, and you trace it back. And yeah, it's, it's like maybe it's a slow news day and they're reaching and they just reach back for old stories. But I do think there was an element of it just taking a lot longer for news to get around. Yeah, we found that when we were doing the research on Blind Joe Parsons, that his Civil War story was repeated for decades yeah. into, the, into the 1900s. And sometimes it's, it's a word-for-word word thing, and sometimes... There's clips of it. Or, or sometimes reporters want to put their own spin on it, so mm-hmm. that's when you get this whispering down the lane thing where it changes a little bit here and there. And so the question is, who wrote the story? And then, curiously, who wrote the ballad that seems to follow this exact story. You know, I love a good ballad. Yes, and there's one called Young Charlotte, which is a story of a Charlotte who freezes on the way to a ball. I was not familiar with this ballad. I know, it was nice. I was like, huh, I got one on you. (laughs) (laughs) I am a uh, ballad aficionado. Some may call me a ballad singer. Yeah. Some may call me a, a keeper of ballads. Some may call anyway. Do you have power in those ballads? Oh, no, don't even. Yeah, so a new-to-me ballad is always welcome and always an, an exciting thing for me. So I maybe I came across this at some point and, like, maybe heard a bluegrass version of it or something. It just didn't, it just didn't register. Yeah, we were listening to a lot of the Library of Congress recordings of this today, and Pete Seeger does a version of it, um, a lot of the classics, and then Alan Lomax recorded people from all over the United States doing this song, which I thought was interesting. 
it it does sometimes take a slightly different verse or two additions and subtractions from it. The tune changes a little bit. Yes, that but was the words very stay interesting. The same. It was and, very interesting because one of the ballads we talked about on the last ballad show for patrons. If you want to hear these ballad shows, become a patron. It was seamless. <laughs> Patreon.com slash strange familiars. Blackjack Davy. The tune stays relatively consistent mm-hmm. throughout. There's variations of it, but it's relatively consistent. Of course, you know, everybody puts their own spin on it, mm-hmm. but it's it's relatively consistent. Now, all the versions we were listening to this, I mean, they were some were pretty close, but a lot of them were vastly different. The, yeah, the and melody. they tend to uh, mimic another common tune in the area. Sometimes, yeah. And you think the reason for this is because they all root back to... They saw it. They saw it. They saw the story. So it's there was a little bit of a controversy as to who wrote this song. Some attribute it to William Lorenzo Carter, who was a blind poet from Vermont. And as we saw... Uh, this was definitely reprinted in Vermont papers, mm-hmm. including the part about it being humbug. And some people attribute it to Siva Smith, who was a publisher of newspapers, who also wrote several collections of stories and songs and such. I think it's possible that it's both. I think it's possible that Siva Smith wrote it, and then William Lorenzo Carter, somebody read him the story, and because he was blind... Someone who was blind might have had this story read to them and then was inspired to write a song, which would be maybe the way that he would interpret this kind of event. Is it based on the story that appeared in the New York Times? Or, or Yes, yes. The be- so- wasn't there a poem that appeared in the papers too? No, it was just the story. Oh, okay. So, okay. I mean, he, he might have, as a general rule, being a, a poet, been prone to write ballads and used these things for inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, news stories often became ballads. I mean, we, you know, Omi Wise, your favorite. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. We found that written in the newspaper and then that's how it became the song. Tom Dooley. News stories, whether they were word of mouth news stories or printed in the paper often became ballads. So yeah, it's, it's that's a quite reasonable maybe origin for this ballad. And as people moved around, that's why it takes up residence uh, everywhere in these very rather disparate parts of of America. It's not like certain ballads which can be traced to like one Irish or family in North Carolina or something right. like that. This was found um, all over Canada and North America and varied states like Minnesota has and North Dakota, Pennsylvania, Vermont. My guess would be that either the blind poet came through that area and sang the song and it was so popular that other people wanted to learn it, or it was reprinted in the paper at some point or in a pamphlet somewhere. This ballad, it goes by a couple names. Fair Charlotte, Young Charlotte. There's a couple other variants. Yeah, I think I even saw someone performing it as the corpse at the ball or something like that Mm -hmm. as well. Found in 30 of the 50 states it's been collected in. That's, That's pretty good. Yeah. It made its rounds. And I, it's interesting to watch the people during the turn of the century or who, like, late 1800s, early 1900s century, that next generation of ballad collectors trying to reconcile where it came from and uh, without having, you know, access to the all these newspaper right. articles we right. have. And the one collector said that uh, because it didn't differ very much from place to place, that he suspected that it probably only been written 40 years previous to the person that he was and he wasn't that far off Mm -hmm. 
So already there's this rich tradition of also understanding from a scientific basis how long it takes a ballad to morph and change into another, a wholly other song. Right. Well, as these things go, you know, when there's a musical component. Mm-hmm. You feel compelled to... <laughs> Especially a ballad. Yeah. However, mm-hmm. I did not have time to learn this ballad. Mm-hmm. But I asked my dear friend and Stone Breath cohort, Serata, if she could do a version for us. And you gave her about 45 minutes to do it. <laughs> we, we don't live in the, the same state or time zone. No, she, I gave her very little notice. And she is a dear, sweet person and did it for me in a night. So we can hear the ballad. Thanks to Serata. I would love to be able to play all these different versions of these songs, but we can't. We will get copyright strikes. Even things that are in public domain, mm-hmm. people have copyrighted the collections they're on, which means these bots that go out and search for, for things like on YouTube and stuff mm-hmm. will find them and report them as copyright strikes. So I would love to be able to play other people's version of these songs. And really, I, you know, it'd be great to be able to play Charlotte sometimes, which we, we will get to as well. But we can't. Mm-hmm. However, we can do our own versions of the songs. And with the help of our dear friend Serata, we have our ballad, Fair Charlotte. Fair Charlotte dwelled on the mountainside in a wild and lonely spot. No dwellings there for three miles round except her father's cot. And here on many a winter's night, Young swains would gather there, for her father kept a social board, and she was very fair. It was New Year's Eve as the sun went down, far looked her wistful eyes, out from the frosty window pane to see the sleighs pass by. At the village fifteen miles away, twas to be a ball that night. And though the air was piercing cold, her heart was warm and light. How brightly beamed her laughing high as a well-known voice she heard. And dashing to the cottage door, her lover's sleigh appeared. O daughter dear, her mother cried, this blanket round you fold. For tis a dreadful night abroad, you'll catch your death of cold. Oh nay, oh nay, young Charlotte cried, she laughed like a gypsy queen. To ride in blankets muffled up, I never would be seen. My silken cloak is quite enough, you know tis lined throughout. And here's my silken scarf to twine my head and neck about. Her bonnet and her gloves were on, she jumped into the sleigh, and swiftly sped down the mountainside and o'er the hills away. With a muffled beat so silently, five miles at length were passed. When Charles, with few and shivering words, the silence broke at last. Such a dreadful night I never saw, my reins I scarce can hold. Young Charlotte faintly then replied, I am exceeding cold. 
He cracked his whip, he urged his steed, much faster than before. And thus five other dreary miles in silence were passed o'er. Spoke Charles how fast the freezing ice is gathering on my brow. And Charlotte still more faintly said, I'm growing warmer now. Thus they rode on through the frosty air and the glittering cold starlight. Until at last the village lamps and ballroom came in sight. They reached the town and Charles sprang out. He held his hand to her. Why sit you like a monument that hath no power to stir? He called her once, he called her twice, she answered not a word. He asked her for her hand again, but still she never stirred. He took her hand in his, twas cold and hard as any stone. He tore the mantle from her face, and the cold stars on her shone. Then quickly to the lighted hall her lifeless form he bore. Young Charlotte was a frozen corpse and never spoke no more. He knelt himself down by her side and bitter tears did flow. He said, my young intended bride, I never more shall know. He flung his arms around her neck and kissed her marble brow. His thoughts went back to the place, she said, I'm growing warmer now. He put the corpse into the sleigh and quickly hurried home. When he reached the cottage door, oh, how her parents mourned. They mourned the loss of their daughter dear, and young Charlie mourned his bride. He mourned until his heart did break, and they slumbered side by side. So now we've taken this story, mm-hmm. and it's become a song. It's become a ballad, and it's moved across the United States. How do the dolls work into the story? My suspicion is that the song was actually really popular. Yeah, it seems to be. And when people saw these all bisque white penny dolls, they thought, oh, it's almost like that girl that froze to death because they're frozen in place. They have... I know this from being around a comic book nerd. They have no points of articulation. That's one of the (laughs) (laughs) primary factors of frozen Charlotte dolls in that they are um, frozen Mm. entirely in place. And so the the more classic ones that are popular during this era of like the 50s to the 80s, I'm talking 1850s to 1880s, they are usually like a plain sort of bisque. Sometimes they're uh, glazed on one side and not the other, so they'll float and, like, imagine how sort of morbid that is. This, yeah, like, yeah. pale kind of, like, I'm imagining, like, like Ophelia-like character right. floating in the water. 
And they tend to be white. They weren't all white. But yeah, but they have a sort of ghostly pallor. Yes, yes. Yes, they're very fair. Um, but this tradition of these sort of dolls that uh, do not have points of articulation that are frozen in place uh, extends all the way into like, you know, like the 1950s or so. So we have some examples that are more closely aligned with probably like the, the 1930s era Japanese-made penny dolls that are like frozen charlottes. Yes, we will talk about them for our Curiosity of the Week upcoming in a bit. These dolls obtain this name, Frozen Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And if you're a boy, Frozen Charlotte. Frozen Charlie. <laughs> Essentially during the Victorian age, at least Absolutely, they, they yeah. gained popu- mm-hmm. popularity. During this time where where mourning culture becomes more prominent, I guess. Yeah, sentimentality and, and sort of a, I mean, we would probably say to now sort of a death obsession, but also death was much more immediate. And a time where cemeteries go from just places to bury the dead to these beautiful kind of park-like places. We yeah, talked the, about that before. Yeah, the rural cemetery movement. Yeah. You have this sort of two-sided version of death mm-hmm. that's coming up. And I think this child's toy, literally named after this, you know, a dead girl or the story of mm-hmm. a dead girl, it really kind of represents that. Yeah. As, as Plus you, get, you also get like a little opportunity to be moralizing with your own kid. Like if you don't dress her... You might freeze to death. <laughs> exactly. Wrap her up. She, yes. th- that Charlotte will be frozen. She also becomes a dessert later on. A dessert? Yes. Frozen Charlotte. The dessert, which is like a custard and ladyfinger kind of affair. Like that starts kind of at the end of the 1800s and extends long enough to so until you start to see sort of like the cheesy 30s, 40s cookbooks. Oh. Still are serving frozen charlottes. Frozen charlottes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which sounds delicious, actually. <laughs> so we have the ballad. We have the dolls. We have the ballad. And we have the original newspaper article. How do we get up to the cure in the <laughs> 1980s? Well, it's a bit of a leap, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about like sort of like since I'd already tried to make the tenuous leap between Princess Charlotte and the rise of mm-hmm. sort of Charlotte's in popular culture. And then I started thinking about, you know, my associations with Charlotte. And for me, there's really only one. <laughs> and it isn't Bronte. I've never been a big Bronte aficionado. Nor Webb. No, nor Webb, really. <laughs> yeah, I liked a different kind of Spider-Man. Oh, I get that. I'm going, oh, you you're, you made a Spidey reference. I was like, no, The Cure also. Gotcha. <laughs> I did not message Robert Smith and ask him to do a new version of Charlotte sometimes that we could use in the show because I just, I didn't think he would get back to me in the same way that Serata did. Plus, he's five hours ahead, so. Yeah. It would probably be too late by the time you. However, Robert Smith, if, <laughs> if you'd like to do some music for Strange Familiars. Well, he did that cartoon soundtrack. Exactly. Right? We, we'd love to have you. So we, when we last stopped our, our Charlotte train, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make a jumping someone else's train. <laughs> <laughs> but you could. But I could. Young Charlotte has been turned into a dessert sometime in the late 30s, at which time a lady in 1939 named Penelope Farmer is born. Have you ever heard of Penelope Farmer? No, I have not. Let me read you the first page of her 1969 children's book. All right. What would the title of this book be? Well, I think it'll become apparent. (laughs) By bedtime, all the faces 
The voices had blurred for Charlotte to one face, one voice. She prepared herself for bed, very slowly and deliberately, cleaning her teeth with the new green toothbrush, undressing awkwardly because she did not like to hide herself in the washing cubicle like the other new girl, Susanna. But she was much too shy and strange to undress openly like the other three, Vanessa, Janet, and Elizabeth. Vanessa wandered about for ten minutes at least in just her undershirt and navy blue school bloomers. She had freckles all over her legs, and Charlotte had never seen anyone with freckled legs before. Susanna had ceased chattering, which was a relief, but still giggled whenever Janet and Vanessa did, though she could not possibly have heard what they were giggling about. Janet and Vanessa talked, or rather whispered, exclusively to each other. The fourth girl, Elizabeth, was sprawled on her bed reading a book. Charlotte had a book beside her, too, but was so tired and confused that she did not want to open it now. Her eyes felt stretched and huge. The light seemed too bright for them, glaring on white walls, white sheets, and bed covers. Even the polished brown linoleum seemed to shine too much, so that the darkness, when the light went out, was the most thankful, cooling thing she had ever known. We have to give the name of the book or we're going to get sued. The name okay. of the book is? The name of the... <laughs> no one's going to sue. Okay. <laughs> the name is Charlotte Sometimes by Penelope Farmer. And for those who did not spend their youth in their bedroom <laughs> with the cure on repeat... Tell us why that opening paragraph is so uh, Well, basically because Robert Smith did a really good job of slicing and dicing that up to become a single in the early 80s called Charlotte Sometimes. Named after the book. This very book. And um, the other thing about this is that actually, while I was, you know, well aware of the song, I'd never read the book before. And it comes from like one of my favorite moments in sort of supernatural fiction, which is like the late 60s. Mm Mm-hmm. There's just a look to those books, and I think these stories of, like, sort of, um, to me, that was something I really loved as a kid, like, those late 60s books, because, you know, they didn't really update the library that much when we were kids. Like, there were, like, two new books every week, maybe, at the most, but there were a lot of books left over from decades before. Yeah, yeah. So, while I missed this book, and I also, there there are a bunch of others that I've since found out that people read in other countries, like Alan Garner, I, you know, The Owl mm-hmm. Service. I never read that as a child, though I would have loved it, which is probably another episode in itself. Yes. So I, I got Charlotte sometimes, and it's a really, I didn't know what it was about, but it's actually a time travel novel that follows two twins, and they're separated in time from the, a 1950s boarding house, which Penelope Farmer and her twin sister did actually attend to um, 1918. So it is the segue into another time, and it's sometimes a word-for-word rip. <laughs> for, uh, the song is, oh, okay. sometimes is a word-for-word rip in certain areas. Like, if you're familiar with the song, that first paragraph, you're like, man, he already like just started off taking the first. But apparently it was um, extremely influential to Robert Smith as a kid, and his older siblings would read it to him. Oh, that's neat. So in the early 80s, though, Penelope Farber's I'm not sure if it's his daughter or granddaughter, informs her that there's a song called Charlotte Sometimes and pretty heavily is borrowing on her intellectual Mm -hmm. property. I did not know this, that it ends up there's a lawsuit. And luckily for everyone, it wasn't deleted as a song that we could hear. Right. They come to an agreement and eventually Penelope Farmer comes to really adore this attention. Mm -hmm. So she goes from being rightfully miffed that someone stole her idea and her lyrics and then she really loves it and it's the only book of hers that's consistently stayed in print 
So she really felt like it was a boon to her career, ultimately. And in the mid-90s, she goes to see Robert Smith. So how old is she when she goes to see The Cure? Uh, I think they said, she said it was maybe the 96 tour. So she would have been... Roughly. Uh, late 50s. Younger than Robert Smith now. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes to see him. The first, her, his agents convinced that they're going to try to, like, just to renegotiate the previously agreed upon terms that there was something else that maybe they were going to go after them for. They're hesitant, but eventually they give her tickets. She meets him and Robert Smith becomes the uh, the fan who comes over sort of sheepishly with his copy of Charlotte sometimes and she signs it. I thought that was like... That's a very sweet story. Yeah, it's an incredibly sweet story. And it was not her thing at all, but she very much enjoyed it. And they made sure that they did Charlotte sometimes that night. And wouldn't it be... Awesome if we could play Charlotte sometimes right yeah, here. Yeah, that would be great. But we can't. <laughs> However, <laughs> you can go to YouTube. You can go to your collection if you have the record, or CD, even cassette. <laughs> cue it up and play it yourself right here. Charlotte sometimes by The Cure. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's such a neat story with the, that I'm glad it, it kind of worked out for all parties there, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, and, and what better tribute than to have someone just really appreciate your work. Yes. We yeah. got a nice message today and the person was like so kind and like, normally you shield me from anything negative people say, but you do share when people say nice things. And we got the nicest message today and I was like, it really pumped me up for doing the show tonight and so I went... Yeah, it was a very, very nice message. Was it message via Etsy? With, with an Etsy order, yeah. Yeah, so I... Very, very kind message. Thank the lady who wrote with the big changes in her life. Charlotte, frozen in time. Yep. We will have the ballad, as long as people are singing ballads. We will have the Cure song, mm -hmm. as long as people remember the Cure. And hopefully this young princess, Charlotte, that's like five or six years old now, that she does something amazing. Stay unfrozen. Yep. Yep. <laughs> 
All right, next, we're going to let the Riverbend fellas, John and Sam, take over the mics. They're going to talk about some comics with paranormal twists to them. They're going to be talking about Department of Truth again, a comic called Sasquatch in Love, <laughs> and another one of, of similar quality, Bigfoot Frankenstein. Yes, I believe it's a Frankenstein made out of Bigfoot parts. You can find John and Sam at riverbendcomics.com, as well as all the titles they talk about. This was recorded a little bit ahead of time, so they're talking about a Department of Truth trade paperback that's about to be released. It is available now. You can get it from Riverbend Comics. Just a note on that. And stay tuned after, because we have a kind of announcement that's related to what they're talking about. So, uh, I'm Sam. Hey, this is John. And we are Riverbend Comics, and we're back again to talk a little bit about comic books with crazy stuff in them. Well, not crazy stuff, but like weird, supernatural stuff that fits in with the sort of theme of the Strange Familiars podcast. We are very grateful to Tim for giving us a little bit of time to talk about our comic books and to uh, um, educate you and perhaps uh, spark some interest in you in some comic book reading. So uh, we're looking today, we're going to look at a couple of different comic books. We're going to start off with a pretty popular title right now, The Department of Truth, which is uh, James Tinian, Tiny Onion, Tiny Onion. His website is Tiny Onion. Yeah, James. I think it's a brilliant play on his name. It is. James James Tiny the Fourth. Tiny the Fourth. And who are the other uh, artists on this book? So we've got Martin Simmons, who is the main artist on the book. And uh, every once in a while, they pull in sort of a guest artist. And the guest artist we have for this issue is a guy named Tyler Boss, who uh, I like quite a bit. He's got, he's done some pretty cool stuff, and he has another new comic coming out called What's the Furthest Place from Here, which is worth checking out when we get it. So this um, is an image imprint, and it's in its, I think, 13 issues have been, have been published so far? Yeah, so we were, we were on the podcast before, and we talked about the first volume, trade paperback that came out called uh, The End of the World, and that was covering the first six issues. And so this is the next six issues, number seven through 12, that we're looking at today. And we, we just finished reading the single issues, which we have, uh, and then the collection that reprints these is coming out uh, any day now, so... Right. So issue seven through 12 picks up um, the story with our protagonist, Cole Turner, who has uh, sort of stumbled into being a recruit for the Department of Truth. He's met Lee Harvey Oswald. I guess if you haven't read one through six, you probably shouldn't be listening to this because we're going to give some things away. But you you should read it. And when you get to um, issue seven through 12, you'll know who Cole Turner is and you'll know what what his uh, sort of role in the whole system is. And he meets some new characters, some pretty wacky characters in these issues, we sort of, in a, in a way, we've begun to kind of become come to terms with and understand what the Department of Truth is, and in some other ways, it becomes more mysterious than ever. It's there's a character that we get introduced to in these issues named Hawk Harrison, who may or may not be an employee of the Department of Truth. He might actually be an employee of the kind of rival organization known as Black Hat. Uh, it's unclear if he's a mole in one or if he's doing you know double duty or what's happening, but he he plays a very crucial role in these issues and he introduces Cole Turner to a um, what the Department of Truth has deemed to be one of the most prevalent tulpas out there. We've used that term before, kind of a a manifestation of uh, human the human mind. 
that it, that becomes so popular and so ingrained in um, in social consciousness that it actually uh, comes into existence. And so the major character or the major tulpa that we're introduced to here, uh, I think starting in issues number nine or number ten, is what, John? The Sasquatch or the, the Bigfoot. Sasquatch. And we're given a history of the, of the Sasquatch or, or Bigfoot as kind of a, a flash history of it. Uh, that Hawk Harrison takes him through in one of uh, what I think is like one of my favorite moments. I, I think it's in issue number 10 yeah, where there's okay. a spread where you see like, you know, Bigfoot or Sasquatch in its, in its glory and uh, Hawk Harrison and Cole Turner and a third character are um, kind of climbing through its body as if it were a tree and, um, and Hawk Harrison is talking through what this, the history of the Sasquatch and where it all comes from. It's kind of an interesting take on the whole like Bigfoot phenomenon, and there's lots of different thoughts on what what Bigfoot really is or isn't. But in the context of the Department of Truth, you know, this is a organization that is essentially trying to keep tulpas in general under wraps. And so this idea that public perception on a certain topic can become so strong that it becomes real that that these operatives are essentially trying to influence public perception in whatever way they see fit for the best of the country. And so if Bigfoot is a manifestation of thought form and they would like to keep it from becoming too dangerous and real, then when these things manifest, it's up to the Department of Truth to kind of track them down and take care of them before, let's say, a body is found, which we can all we always talk about in the Bigfoot world is if Bigfoot's real, where are the bodies? Mm. Well, this may address that. Mm hmm. These issues also uh, dive into the UFO phenomenon somewhat. Mm hmm. And uh it's a pretty good second running. And just like the first six issues, it's so dense and there's so much going on that I really kind of had to go back and reread through these a second time to really like grasp like all the, the intricate working parts and to connect all the dots and tie the threads up, which is really kind of how conspiracy theories in general work themselves. So it's kind of fascinating that in some ways the, the form of these books uh, embody the topics that they're covering. And uh, I think that's really neat. What I like most about this is the history lessons that some of you may find that tedious, but I, I'm fascinated by them and they come really quickly that, you know, they'll be on a spread or they'll just sort of like, they'll be moving through a space and you'll see that space manifest. And then all of a sudden they'll be there, either they'll actually be there or it's just one of the characters sort of talking through what this thing is. For example, like Aleister Crowley is brought up um, and that's maybe a name that, that, that has sort of surfaced here before, but these characters sort of become part of the story and you see some of the things that, that they have um, they worked on sort of manifest in the, in the imagery which I really like and so you get these histories yeah so he talks about when he um, was visited and essentially wrote the book of law uh, and developed the th thalema do all, what all thou that, wilt shall be the whole of the law do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law um, so it ties that history of Aleister Crowley and his um, sort of leanings into the the world building aspect of the department of truth i mean this this series is really kind of like tailor-made for the strange familiars crowd i think because they're really taking every aspect of the paranormal and the mysteries of of all these things and tying them up into one connected story and explaining them all and then really addressing them and dealing with them in the realm of the government and what if these things were real and if these things are actually taking place on american soil how does that impact u.s government policy and what do they do about it 
So it really has, a, like we've mentioned last time, it has a strong X-Files kind of leaning to it. Mm-hmm. And there's also um, a character within all of these issues in, in the series so far, uh, the lady in red, who features prominently on a lot of the covers, who has been cited by a couple of the characters, has not been explained at all, but it talks about how Aleister Crowley in his early days met with the lady in red. And so we don't know who she is yet or how she ties into all this, but um, that's one of the big mysteries in this book that hasn't been revealed yet. And I like also how the, uh, you know, in sort of character monologues, they talk through like some of the ways in which the Department of Truth has has influenced um, U.S. foreign policy to kind of like, here's this thing happening over here. Like they're talking about the Reagan years. Ronald Reagan, the actor um, talking about the Reagan years was a Ted Lasso reference and and how like, you know, all these things are going on, like uh, um, Iran Contra and how if you just shift the narrative a little bit in people's minds, they'll forget about what the, the horrible things their government is doing. And they'll focus on like the fact that satanic rituals are taking place in, in, in daycares and, and kindergartens all around the country. And, and like that's the thing that we need to focus on, even though those are total like made up things that have no no basis in reality but what it's the purpose of it is to like redirect people's attention these issues are coming out in book form um we have if you go to our website we have all of the issues in various forms um available they've uh done multiple printings of these they also tend to print each issue with different covers so whether you're a collector or just looking for uh the issue you're missing to read them i gotta i gotta ask you so there's a couple, there are two or three two or three of these issues deal specifically with with Bigfoot. Uh-huh. Like you seem to have like a pretty a strong connection to this story. Like this is one that 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 really fascinates you. And so the the issue I think they're nine, ten, and eleven. The issues that deal with with Bigfoot, right? And so, primarily ten and eleven. They kind of lead into it with number nine, but 10 and, and so 11 there's a character named Evan who uh, appears. And some of the some of Evan's story we learn through letters he's written to his son. Yeah. How did you, first of all, how did you feel about that that sort of aesthetic as a storytelling um, storytelling method? Uh, all right, once again, I'm going to paint myself as the grumpiest comic fan. No, I life. didn't like it. Um, I hate this when they do this. Yes, me too. So we've got like <laughs> multiple full pages that it's hard um, to read. It's hard to read that are that are essentially handwritten as if you were reading his journal, and I don't love that. I, at times, it works. Uh, here, I thought it was a little overplayed, and. Um, I think five or six entire pages in this issue are handwritten. And there's more in the next one. Yeah, so it's it's um it's not my favorite. I really like the the story of Evan himself. Mm-hmm. His story was fantastic and how he essentially saw Bigfoot in person with his father, right? Or his father saw Bigfoot and they went out and he saw the tracks. And so he knew that his father really saw what he saw, but no one would believe him and over the years it really eroded the relationship of his parents. And I don't want to give too much away on that, but as Evan became an, an adult and really resonated with, with what he had seen and continued to try to seek this out, it eroded the relationship of his, you know, so we started to see these children. patterns, yeah. patterns within the family. Yeah. Um, it's a and, 50 uh, year journey for him. Yeah. Which, which resolves itself in this issue in, in, in a way that we're not going to reveal, but I, I really liked it a lot. I thought it was really great. And we got to see that as almost like a catalyst for some pretty sensitive tender moments within the characters that we do know that were a little surprising to me yeah and i thought that was really neat yeah and and then it sort of touches off yeah exactly like hawk is hawk harrison the guy with the american flag hat who's like this tough character and he's always saying things like don't get your panties in a twist so can i tell you about hawk and what i what i saw in that character please um if anyone has watched the netflix daredevil series the character that plays stick that's hawk to me 
Like, if they ever make this in a movie, I want that actor to play Hawk. Because I totally heard Stick in my head, um, the actor's voice. When I read his lines, that's who I hear in my head. Callous, sort of dispassionate. Bitter and grumpy. Bitter and grumpy. Just, this is the job. Just do it. Stop with your panty-waist emotions. <laughs> yeah, so I thought the dynamic between... Um, I'm trying to think of the actor's name. Cole right and Hawk were very similar to, to Daredevil and Stick. In fact, Cole's Cole's partner in in this comic, his name is is Matt, and they refer to him sometimes as Matty, mm-hmm. which is what Stick always referred to Matt Murdock as. That's right. So I, that yeah. hit me, and I was like, "Wow!" Yeah. So um, uh, I, the reading Department of Truth always leaves me with a feeling of like cold, spooky, slithery darkness. Like sure. I walk away from this feeling like very uncomfortable. You want to take a shower? No, I want to get into bed. But then, yeah. like, bed seems scary too. <laughs> And I will say, uh, this this podcast, our, our conversation here only covers issues 7 through 12. But we do have issue 13 for sale on our site. And um, to me, that was the best one yet. I haven't read that one yet. So we're not going to talk about 13 here, but 13, like, blew me away. The story is still very much alive and growing. Yeah. And just yeah, getting like, started, it seems Sometimes like. titles like this fizzle, you know? Yeah. Like, we've had that experience with certain things where it's like, oh, this is great. This is such a great concept. Um, but this has legs to it it's yeah. it's got meat to it and it, it keeps you know like the idea that um you could take the different uh supernatural aspects uh you know that are talked about here on this podcast and really bring them to life i mean not not just like within the story but also like the the imagery here which like mm-hmm. really just sometimes it's do- dark and muted but sometimes it pops off the page um especially that image of the bigfoot that they're climbing through that's what makes this really successful yeah, once again, I didn't I didn't love this guy's artwork to start with, Martin Simmons, and he's grown on me. And so now I'm really, it definitely suits the story, and I'm I'm enjoying what I'm reading and seeing at the same time. So Sasquatch appears in another pretty. Yeah, we thought we would uh, in we another we'd keep with the Bigfoot theme. In another and... pretty pretty serious, pretty dense, pretty you know gut wrenching story called <laughs> Sasquatch in Love by Jason Nutt and Alexis Vallo. Yeah. Um, don't let the title fool you. It's got everything. <laughs> it's going to rip your heart out. It's going to rip your heart out. Um, this, so this book, in all seriousness, this book was hilarious. Yeah, this is this is um, a, a whole other end of the spectrum of Department of Truth. Uh, <laughs> Sasquatch and Love is published by Action Lab Comics. Uh, it was a four-issue series that they reprinted in book form. And if you're one of those uh, Bigfoot fans that wants to get everything Bigfoot all the time, this is for you. It's hilarious. Uh, it's not something you're going to take very seriously at all. It's um, a it's a romantic comedy. It's a romantic comedy, and you laughed at it, and you don't have a sense of humor. Yeah, I'm picky with comedy. This was enjoyable, and I thought it was funny, and it was a light read. I sat and did it all in one sitting, and um, not my normal cup of tea. But it one was of a- the questions that comes up is, how does a Sasquatch go to the bathroom? That's one of the many questions that this book doesn't answer, but but brings to our attention yeah and this is a sasquatch who um highly functional just wants to be seen and heard and loved and write poetry and he's all alone he's the last of his kind and he thinks he is and he's a shakespeare fan and he steals books from the library and um, why does he steal books from the library why does he just get a library card i mean he's a sasquatch but that that's a, that's a moment in the story where they're like you can just get a library yeah, card. just go during the day and get a library card <laughs> um so he makes friends he makes um Close friends. Close friends. They're, they're hard, hearts that are melted, hearts that are broken, and hearts that are melted. Uh-huh. 
I don't know what to say about it. It's it's silly. It's worth reading if you just need something light lighthearted and. Um, oh, and by the way, we learned that Bigfoot is a derogatory term. Yeah, according to this, uh, he is a Sasquatch, and he does not appreciate um, negative talk about his feet. Yeah, the term Bigfoot is canceled. It's canceled. Don't use it anymore. Don't use it. Speaking of Bigfoot, <laughs> Bigfoot and Frankenstein. Yeah. So okay, one more <laughs> one more ridiculous thing that we want to put out. Coincidentally or not, also published by Action Lab. Uh, I guess they're on the theme this year. Uh, they have a new series called Bigfoot Frankenstein. and um, It's just ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. And, and once again, if you feel like you got to have all the Bigfoot stuff, you need this. Otherwise, I'm not so sure. It, I mean, let's be honest. It's not that good. It's not that good. The concept of it is basically like... <laughs> so it starts out page one with um, a scene where a bunch of hunters have shot and killed the last Sasquatch tribe and so they've been hunted to extinction but it gets funny from there <laughs> lo and behold that's the low point the grandson or, or great grandson no, of Dr. great great it's many oh it's many greats he, that's a joke I right? didn't think it was so great uh, it's <laughs> many, many great grandson of Dr. Frankenstein who happens to have his notes Frankenstein Frankenstein if you're familiar with the film who has his notes and equipment Decides to take the pile of dead Sasquatches and put them back together in Frankenstein form. So we now have a, a Bigfoot Frankenstein. That's the entire premise of the thing. There's there's nothing more to it than that. There's some fourth wall breaking jokes. Yeah, it doesn't take itself too seriously and it kind of makes fun of itself along the way. And that's that's the nice thing about it. Um, it is an ongoing series and there will be more of these. And if you're jonesing for Bigfoot Frankenstein as yeah. a character in your life. And we'll, we'll get them and read them. There but, will um, be more. Bottom line, Bigfoot Frankenstein is not a bad guy, but it might be a bad comic. <laughs> yeah. But we'll uh, post pictures of that, too, and you can check it out. And that's that's all we have for you today. Um, so Department of Truth, pay, Trade Paperback Volume 2 on its way out, on its way to you. You can find images of the comics on our Instagram right now, and you can go purchase it right now. Uh, and if you are so inclined, you can purchase Sasquatch and Love. Uh, the trade paperback. We also have the individual issues, don't we? Yeah, we do. We have we have all all the above. All four of them, and uh, of course, Bigfoot Frankenstein, which is uh, a must-have for all of you Bigfoot Frankenstein fans out there. Absolutely. So there you go. Again, our thanks to uh, Tim Renner for letting us <laughs> be ridiculous for a few minutes and talk about what we love, which is comic books. Yep, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back again with another um, riveting episode <laughs> installment of- uh, installment of. <laughs> what kind of weird comics can we find and talk about? So, yep. uh, we're open to requests. Let us know. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Riverbendcomics.com is the website, and Riverbend Comics for Instagram and also on Facebook, and you can find all the wacky stuff that we've mentioned here on those sites. Is there... Do I have a drum roll? Nope. 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 <laughs> I have a sad trombone. Do I have a drum roll? No, that's not really a drum roll. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a, a, a... You did a zinger. Yeah. I don't have a drum roll. So, as promised, I have an announcement. Much of October, I spent doing a few drawings, trying to get the right one. And I landed on one. An illustration I did, colored by Jesse Hege, who you may be familiar. He's colored my Where the Footprints End covers. He colored the cover to The Witch Cloud. 
the color version of the William and the Fiery Flowers art that I've done. He colored that as well. So we've been working together here and there. I love Jesse's work. Uh, he's fantastic. He colored this art, and uh, it is my debut as a comic book cover artist. Upcoming issue of Department of Truth is about Mothman, and I did an alternate cover. So it will not be the cover that you see on the newsstand. It's a variant cover that will be available from Riverbend Comics. As an artist, I had to get approved by Image, and then they had to approve the actual artwork I did for the cover. This will be available again at riverbendcomics.com. I'm super excited about it. It's certainly my favorite Mothman image I've ever done. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what these variant covers are? Because I hadn't heard of them before. Well, they're done in various different ways, and John could probably explain the in and outs better than I can. But this is what's known as a store variant, which means it will only be available from Riverbend Comics, from the store. I believe I get credited as a cover artist you know, for the for the alternate covers uh-huh. in the regular issue, the one you'll find on the newsstand, but I'm not entirely sure about that. It won't be the cover you, you find on the newsstand. You got to get it from Riverbend Comics. There's a limited number available. We're not sure exactly how many because you kind of get what you get. You order a certain amount and they, they deliver a certain amount, but... He oh, may- because other ones are, I mean, just because Riverbend is the only place to get them doesn't mean that com- individual comic book companies couldn't request him to get some or... No, it's have- going to be exclusive oh, to Riverbend. It's going oh, to be exclusive okay. to Riverbend. But uh, it's my first professional comic work. I'm super, well, okay, no, I did one other <laughs> comic story, which I don't want to talk about. It's all, You can find it if you look on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. This is the first cover I've done, however... It is a dream job for me. Don't worry. No danger in me stopping Strange Familiars. As I said on the podcast we did uh, after my MS event in the spring, I am where I belong. I'm not going anywhere. However, I will make extra time to do comic covers if there are more in my future. Like I said, it's a dream job for me. I've always wanted to do them. I'm super excited to do this Department of Truth cover. It's a Mothman. I miss the Bigfoot issues. They came out. Before you knew about it. Before I knew that this was an option to do. But uh, this will be the first of hopefully several of these covers we're doing. And, uh, you know, my my real hope is that it kind of moves into me doing more uh, cover work for comics. I'm open to it. Uh, If any independent comic companies or anything. (laughs) Or listening. (laughs) Yeah, seriously, I am am open to to doing cover work. But uh, it it is, again, kind of a dream come true for me. So... This will be, like I said, the the first of multiple covers we're doing on on different titles, hopefully, uh, if this is a success. I want to wait until we get the cover back from Image with the Department of Truth logo on it to Mm -hmm. debut the artwork. We were hoping to get that back this week. If it comes in in time, I'll put it in the show notes. If not, we'll announce it when it is available. It should be available to pre-order at riverbendcomics.com. That's the only place you're going to be able to get it. We've done special editions, so there will be an edition that comes with a trading card. There'll be an edition that comes with Monsters Under the Hospital Bed and the comic and a trading card. The comic and Monsters Under the Hospital Bed will be signed. So there'll be different editions available there from Riverbend. I hope it's a success for Riverbend, and uh, I hope to be doing more, but uh, I'm very, very excited about it. Like I said, dream job for me. So... That's my big announcement, and that's what I was working on for a lot of October in my spare time. Riverbendcomics.com. Pre-orders should be up soon, very soon for that. And again, we'll, we'll announce it again as we go on here.
You know, if that girl going to the ball had had a nice warm dog on her lap, she might not have frozen to death. That's true. Especially if it was a well-trained dog. Mm-hmm. Perhaps a dog she raised from a puppy. And perhaps she would have needed help training that dog. And uh, if it was the 1830s, you'd be out of luck <laughs> as far as maybe you knew a neighbor or something that could help you. Maybe somebody's 20 miles away and you have to go for a cold ride in January to get help training your dog. You don't have to do that today. Today, we have 90 days to the perfect puppy, which you can find at sithappens.us. You look for the 90 days to the perfect puppy link at the top of the page. They can help you train your puppy. They can help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. They use proactive training. It's not about smacking the dogs with newspapers. That's not how you do it. They help you learn how your dog thinks, which is not how you think, and apply training methods. So once again, you and your puppy become perfect for each other. You're not shoving your dog in a mold. You're finding that place where you become perfect for each other. They have online sources like video lessons, a secret Facebook group. One-on-one options are available. Again, you can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. What an on-point curiosity of the week, Allison. You know, I do like a theme. You have brought me a box of on-point multiple curiosities. These are Frozen Charlottes. Yes, of a later vintage. Most of these are Japanese-made, probably during the Depression. Yes, yes. So some people call them, what, like penny Penny, penny dolls? Penny dolls, yeah. Inexpensive dolls. Except for the two larger ones. Which, which are, are probably like some form, form of really plastic or celluloid or something like that. Which are unclosed. Mm-hmm. The others are closed and painted, so they're not pure white. But you said they do still qualify, technically, as, as frozen Charlotte dolls. Yes. Depending on who you ask. And yeah. Some people are very... Our frozen Charlotte purists. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to include them under the umbrella of... Because they have no points of articulation. Frozen Charlottes and frozen Charlies. We have for sale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight of them. The two naked ones look the same. The others are all dressed differently. You can buy them all and have an instant collection, or you can get them one at a time. There'll be an image of these in the show notes. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can buy one or all of these frozen Charlottes. Everyone should have a frozen Charlotte in their life. Some of these are really neat. I've, the littlest one, I, know, I like I the best. I like, I like her the best. I know. I almost feel like we should keep one of them. Our shop name is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, you, you should see our stuff come up. So about that announcement, sometime coming up, I'll be adding some of the Mothman artwork I did in October, trying to get the right piece. <laughs> I had done a, another piece that we used for a trading card. That we ended up using it as a trading card image, basically, for the trading card that's that's going to come with that edition of the comic. But uh, I will put that artwork up. I guess I'll put the artwork up that will be used on the comic. I don't know what the price is going to be on that. My book cover artwork tends to be a little more expensive. I'm not sure where to place the comic book artwork as far as price-wise. We'll have a, a meeting and a discussion about that, and we'll see. But that should be up there eventually. Uh, the other, Like I said, the other Mothman artwork, the one we use for the trading card, will be up there. I'll start adding stuff from the Witch Cloud original artwork up there as well. I am going to try to do some Bell Snickle paintings this year. I didn't get a chance. I don't think I did any last year. I've done one so far this year. It sold in minutes. I didn't see it. When was the The one that, uh, that Maya bought. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I was just, for some reason I was just thinking small, but that doesn't. Really yeah, matter. yeah. So hopefully I'll be able to do some Bell Snickle paintings because it is the season. 
also on Etsy. Oh, we have all the sizes for Strange Familiars t-shirts are restocked now. What, what, what small? Small it? through 3XL. Every size is in stock. Just in time for the holidays. Someone was asking, I was talking about doing long sleeve shirts. They were asking if they missed them. No, I just haven't gotten them done yet. I need to do the design for that. I was working on that comic cover in October, basically. I'm going to try to come up with a long sleeve design and get it done before warm weather comes, hopefully. <laughs> so it's going to be a different design than the Awoken Tree, the regular Strange Familiars logo. It's, it'll be something different. But no, that has not happened yet, but we will hopefully be doing those pretty soon. All of my books are in stock at Etsy, except for The Witch Cloud. The Witch Cloud, you have to get at stonebreath.bandcamp.com because it comes with a download of the audio, all the audio that goes with the book and the bonus podcast and the song we did with Black Happy Day. If you are waiting for your book, there's a few people who ordered. I had to get another shipment of the hardcovers in. They should be here this week, and we'll be sending those out this week. Again, you can find The Witch Cloud at stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Uh, so far, people seem to like it, which I'm very happy about. We put a lot of work into that and uh, kind of a multimedia podcast project. Very excited about that. We are changing the way we schedule guests as of uh, February of 2022. Scheduling people months ahead of time has not been working out. You know, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in two months from now or three months from now. Yeah. So I don't blame people. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is not me blaming people. People just happens. People's schedules change. They forget. They schedule something three months ahead of time. They forget. So a lot of people have been, you know, not able to make their interviews, which, again, I understand. I'm not blaming them. I totally get it. I mean, they're helping us out. We're not- <laughs> yeah, I know what I'm doing every Monday night. I'm doing interviews. I don't blame somebody who doesn't do that every Monday night for yeah, know, yeah. it not being at the forefront of their mind and so forth. So because of this, and I think to make it easier on me, this will be easier on me as well for scheduling. We're changing the way we schedule things starting in February 2022. We are looking at this point uh, to set up some interviews, though. We're always looking for flannel man stories, of course. If you have seen a ghost or some kind of eerie figure in plaid or flannel or checkered shirt, we want those stories. It's been a long time since we've gotten a bunny man story. I feel like we're due. Mm -hmm. If anyone has seen someone outside of Easter time dressed as a rabbit in a very strange situation, we have not gotten any bunny man stories in a while. I love bunny man stories. I'd like to get some of those in. And of course, we're always looking for Bigfoot stories, anybody who's had a Bigfoot encounter. Our email for that is strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. I may not be able to reply to every email I get, but we do read them all. What's happening is uh, there's going to be kind of a list and we're just going to go through and schedule a week ahead of time. And if one person's not available the next week, we're just going to go down the list and we'll come back to yeah. the person if they, they aren't available. Cycle through. We'll just cycle through and we'll see who's available uh, from week to week. So that way we're scheduling people a week ahead of time instead of months ahead of time. But uh, we are looking to schedule some interviews now. For a while, we were kind of frozen that because we just mm -hmm. had too many interviews backed up. And then, uh, of course, any kind of paranormal story, paranormal encounter, of course, we, we would love to hear it, but we're especially looking for our favorite. Yeah, Funny Man, <laughs> Flannel Man, and Bigfoot. Uh, but of course, you know, we're open to any uh, ghost or UFO type encounter, any kind of paranormal encounter as well. If a bunch of men are falling out of your closet playing a comb. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Strange Familiars Podcast at gmail.com. Be patient with me. Like I said, I can't always reply to everything, but we do read every message that comes in. 
Thank you for listening, everybody. We will be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stonebreath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com, where you can also purchase The Witch Cloud. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word. And you can always find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com. Sold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.